Good morning, church. My name is Colin Crawford. I'm, I'm so thankful to be here and to be able to preach God's word to you. Uh, just on behalf of my wife and I, we want to thank uh, each one of you who have shown us so much uh, hospitality, a welcoming spirit. We have been received and loved so well this weekend, and we thank you guys for that. I'd like to invite you to open your copy of God's Word, whether it be a text or a, a mobile device, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 16. 11 through 16. I'd like to open us up in a, in a quick word of prayer. Let's go to the Lord. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity to hear from your word. Lord, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross, that you would um, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable before you. Lord, I pray that uh, we who are hearing your word this morning would respond appropriately. Lord, show us your face this morning through your word, through the presence of the Holy Spirit among us. Show us your face, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I've entitled this sermon, Defining Discipleship. If I was to ask you the question, what is a disciple? That's a fairly easy question. A disciple can be defined as a, as a follower of Jesus. But if we take that a step further and then say, well, if a disciple is a follower of Jesus, how do you define discipleship? There's a lot of things that we call discipleship. It can mean uh, what we do as we gather corporately, weekly, um, through the singing of, of songs and the preaching of the word, um, the observance of ordinances, these things. It can be one-on-one -on -one mentoring. It can be going through material. It can be a lot of different things. Um, I've heard uh, Sean say this weekend that discipleship is uh, helping each other take our next steps towards Jesus. I feel like that's a pretty good definition. But we're still left with some, some pieces. Where does it happen? What does it look like? How does it occur? What is the goal and purpose of discipleship? You see, I believe this morning in this text that the Holy Spirit is kind of giving us essentially the picture on the puzzle box. Do you know what I'm talking about? We're left with a lot of pieces, but this text, when we look at it, it helps us have a bigger picture so that when we're assembling the pieces, we don't lose sight of the grand scheme of things. Let's read this text together, starting in verse 11. Ephesians 4.11. Paul says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul essentially casts a vision to the Ephesian believers of what local church discipleship should look like, where each 
member of the body participates to build up the body. What I want us to see this morning is that discipleship has a proper place. It has a progression. It has a pattern. And lastly, it has a purpose. Look with me uh, again at verses 11 and 12 as we're going to see that discipleship has a place. Paul says that uh, Jesus, that's when he says he gave, he's speaking of Jesus, says Jesus has given the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to the church as a gift. And he's given these gifted leaders to the church for a, for a reason. Verse 12, it says to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Kind of quick run through of these five different roles that Paul says uh, have been given to the church apostles. That term can kind of be used differently throughout the New Testament. Strictly speaking, it could speak of the, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, or Paul. Uh, more generally speaking, an apostle is, simply means a sent one. That's what the word means. And in our, in our day, it would probably function more as a, a missionary or a church planter. Secondly, he, he refers to prophets have been given. We probably shouldn't think of, of prophets in the Old Testament sense of the word where people are kind of uh, telling the future and, and predictions and things like that. This has more to do with edification and exhortation. Uh, the New Testament believers didn't have the New Testament canon. So there were needed to be people who would stand up and speak a timely word to God's people. Thirdly, he speaks of evangelists. These is probably not the traveling evangelist that we might think of. Like when I say evangelist, probably a lot of us think of Billy Graham or someone like that in, in that mold. It's probably not what Paul is speaking to. He's speaking to uh, someone who is connected to a specific area, who would kind of come behind the apostles as they would plant churches. And the evangelists were people who would come and work alongside them to equip others to share their faith. Lastly, he speaks of shepherds and teachers. The word shepherds, we understand that as pastor. He speaks of teachers. These are all gifted individuals that have been given to the church. But the question remains, why has Jesus given gifted leaders to the church? Well, I hope we have a slide for it. There's kind of two views on this, um, on this verse. Do we have that view number one? There it is. So view number one would read verse 11 and 12. So he gives gifted leaders. Verse 12, it says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So in this view, there's a huge distinction between pastors and lay people. Basically, pastors have been given or other gifted roles for three reasons. To equip the saints, to do the work of ministry, and for the building up of the body. Now, I don't think that's how we should read this text. Can we go to view number two? View number two is the ministry of all believers. Read it, read it with me again. Verse 12, it says he's given these leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body. In this view, it is not the professionals who do everything. It is not the pastors who do everything, the elders, the deacons, but where each member of the body uses the gifts that God has given them for the purpose of ministry and for the building up of the body. Some context of this passage, look with me if you can to Ephesians 4, 7. In verse 7, Paul had said, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. What Paul is saying here is that it's not only the leaders who have gifts. 
It's not only the leaders who have gifts, and it's not only the leaders who are to do the work of ministry and to build up the body. It's actually every single member of the body has been gifted. Verse 7 says, according to the measure of Christ's gift, in 1 Peter 4.10, he encourages the believers, Peter does, to be good stewards of God's varied grace. See, God's grace is different in each one of our lives. I'm not gifted in the way you are. It's like snowflakes. It looks differently for each one of us. But each person's gift is necessary for the maturity and the building up of the body. So what does this tell us? It tells us that discipleship should be happening primarily in the local church. This is where God has promised to give gifts to, to each member. And he's given gifted leaders Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. He, he hasn't promised to give it to any other group. He's talking to the church. This is where deep discipleship should be happening. I want to ask a, a question, rhetorical question. Where, think about it in your own personal experience. Where has most of your spiritual formation and discipleship occurred? Has it been in the local church? You see, I think for many, many people's spiritual formation has occurred outside of the church, actually, in parachurch organizations, groups like Campus Crusade for Christ, or Navigators, or Fellowship of Christian Athletes, or Collegiate Ministries, Bible College Seminary, the list goes on and on, and these are all good things. Be clear on that. These are good things. But I believe that's what's happened is when the church fails to disciple its own people, these groups are stepping in and filling a hole and filling a vacuum. And it ought not to be that way. Discipleship should happen primarily in the local church where God has gifted each member and given leaders to the church to build them up in their gifts for the work of ministry. These organizations are good things when they complement and supplement the church, not when they replace it. Local churches cannot afford to delegate discipleship to any other group. This is the place, this is the people, the family that God has ordained to work through in the world. So we've seen that the local church is God's appointed place for discipleship. Look with me now to verses 13 and 14. He says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. In verse 13, Paul says that we are to strive to attain to certain things. He mentions the unity of the faith. He mentions the knowledge of the Son of God. He mentions uh, mature manhood. He, He mentions... Uh, attaining the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's talking about pursuing a goal. And we know that in this lifetime, we're not going to attain these perfectly. We will not attain to perfect unity, perfect knowledge, perfect maturity in this lifetime. That will be attained in glory. But Paul's saying we should strive for these things, that we should seek to make it our goal to press on to maturity. Paul describes maturity, mature manhood, he describes it as the fullness of Christ. What full maturity looks like is looking like Jesus. 
That's the goal. That's what we're after in discipleship. Notice the image that Paul uses in verse 14. He says that we would no longer be children. He talks about being tossed to and fro and carried by the waves. It's basically an image of a boat out on a raging sea with no anchor, no mast, no sails, no rudders. It's, it's helpless. It's helpless to the, the winds and the waves. This is what it looks like to be an infant spiritually. It's marked by instability and immaturity. But Paul encourages us to strive to look like Jesus, to strive to look like spiritual adults, that we would no longer be children. See, in Scripture, there's a distinction that we need to make. We are encouraged to have a childlike faith, but not a childish faith. You see what I'm saying? There are certain things that we need to keep. Jesus said, unless you receive or welcome the kingdom of heaven like a child, you'll not enter it. There are certain things that we want to keep. We want to keep our wonder and our awe about what God has done for us. We want to keep our dependence on our Father, our innocence. But there's certain things that we need to leave behind as we press on to maturity. We need to lose the instability. We need to lose the gullibility, the immaturity that comes with being a spiritual child. Notice the emphasis and the importance that Paul places on doctrine. We might call it theology. Look what he says. He doesn't want them to to be spiritual children who are carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Paul is worried about false doctrine, false teaching, about uh, the church at Ephesus being deceived by human cunning and craftiness. And I don't think this is a matter of simply accidentally believing the wrong things. This is a matter of being picked out. Paul, so many times, and in Scripture we see he warns churches to watch out for the wolves, to watch out for the dogs. Jesus said that uh, false teachers would enter the church and they would look like they would be wolves in sheep's clothing. They would have the appearance of goodness, but inwardly they would be actually trying to destroy the sheep, the flock of God. We need to be aware of this, that there's always going to be wolves as long as there's a church And it's as we grow in maturity and grow in our knowledge of the faith that we are actually stabilized and protected from these things. So doctrine and theology matters. I think it gets a bad rep a lot of the times as being really impractical, as being really abstract. But it's been said that theology is actually the most important thing about you. What we believe about God is the most important thing about us. It will shape our entire lives. Our worldview, how we live, it will shape us. And this is best done in community where there's protection. Images of the church in scripture is a body, a city, a family. There's protection in those things. But when we're severed from the body, when we're outside of the family, when we're outside the walls of the city, we're unstable. We're unprotected. So we come together as a church to grow in our faith together. So we've seen, number one, that there's a place for discipleship. Number two, there's a progression as we move from spiritual infancy to maturity. Look with me now to verse 15 to see that discipleship also has a pattern. Verse 15, Paul says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. 
Paul says that we are to speak the truth in love to one another. This is the way that discipleship should be done. But here's the reality. Oftentimes we treat this as an either or type of thing. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. Oftentimes, most of us in this room are gonna lean to one side or the other. Either we're gonna be pretty good about love and not so much on truth, or we're gonna be really good about truth and not so much on love. There's a a quote by Tim Chester. He said, love without truth is like doing heart surgery with a wet fish. But truth without love is like doing heart surgery with a hammer. You see, when we have love without truth, we don't have the precision that we need to make real change. But if we have truth without love, we're gonna go in there and we're just gonna destroy what should be kept and protected. We need both. There's gonna be those of us in the church who are pretty non-confrontational, that are always looking to avoid the fight, to avoid the, the conflict. And then there's going to be those of us who are pretty comfortable in it, who who don't mind it. But we need to keep in mind the character of God. Jesus is described in John 1.14 as full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. This is the example that we've been set in Jesus. He was so good, so balanced at both. You see... If our favorite picture and image of Jesus is is him turning over tables and driving people out of the the temple, I think that says more about us than it says about Jesus. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Well, he was a man's man. He was a carpenter's son, right? Yes, Jesus had backbone. Jesus told the truth. But let's not construct a Jesus in our image. He was meek. He was gentle and lowly. He wept over the loss of his friend, Lazarus. He wept over the sin of Jerusalem. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. We need both truth and love in the local church as we strive to disciple one another. To be honest, I believe that love is the more pressing need in our moment, in our circles. I'm talking about evangelical circles. I'm talking about Southern Baptist circles. We have so many churches today that are orthodox. They teach the right things, but they're loveless. They're loveless. General Patton in uh, 1944 in France, as the war was coming to a conclusion, it's reported, uh, this is one of the greatest uh, U.S. generals in World War II, it's reported as he was walking through a battlefield in France in 1944 and uh, walking through the carnage of a hand-to-hand battle, Patton reportedly told his aide, quote, I love it. God help me, I love it so. I love it more than my life. He'd fallen in love with the fight and forgotten what it was all about. I'd like to, to read a section of scripture from Revelation chapter 2. This is the section of Revelation where um, John is is told to to write to seven different churches who are struggling with different things. In chapter 2, these words are given to a church. Revelation 2 verse 2 says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Later on in verse 6, he says, 
This you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So this church is being commended for their orthodoxy, their commitment to truth. They, they had found out the false apostles. They had hated these group of heretics called the Nicolaitans. They didn't allow false teaching in their church. But in verse 4 and 5, it says this. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Here was a church that was orthodox, committed to truth, but they had lost the love they had at first. Do you know what church that's being written to here? It's Ephesus. It's the very same church that we are reading that Paul is writing to in Ephesians chapter 4. The same church that here in verse 15, Paul is encouraging them to speak in love. Years later down the road, they would need to be told to repent over their lovelessness. Maybe there's those of us here this morning who need to be reminded of this, to not fall to one extreme or the other, but to be people who speak the truth in love to one another. This is how discipleship should be done. This is the pattern that we've been set. The local church is a family. Sometimes there is need for correction and discipline, but it's also a place of tender love and care and affection for one another. So we've seen the place, the, the progression, the pattern of discipleship. Look with me now to verse 16. At the end of verse 15, he said, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. He says, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Notice these words that Paul says. He says, the whole body. He says, every joint. He says, each part. You see what Paul is saying here? It takes all of us. It's not just gifted leaders. It's not just people who are kind of seen as influencers in the church. It's every one of us, whole body, each joint, each part. When we work together, when we grow together, the body is built up in love. The body will not grow. This church will not um, the way it should if each member is not using their gifts. Each member's contribution is necessary it's absolutely necessary notice it's not only that we include everyone but that each member each joint each part be working properly that we be working in a, in a healthy way when we're called to grow up into Christ likeness we're called to build each other up through Jesus's work in us and through the gifts that he's given to all of us we build one another up I think in America we're pretty bad about prioritizing the individual over the community. We're all about individual rights, individual liberties, individual freedoms, that sometimes we elevate the individual over the community. This is not the vision that Paul is giving here for discipleship in the local church. We are concerned for one another. We are responsible for one another. We're accountable to one another. 
This attitude of not my business, not my problem, it's not biblical. It's not how the local church is meant to work. We should be concerned that our brothers and sisters be growing in the Lord, not just our own spiritual growth. John Calvin said it well when he said, that man is mistaken who desires his own separate spiritual growth. For what would it profit an arm or a leg if it grew to an enormous size? You get that image, a picture of a body with an enormous bicep or an enormous calf. It's not proportionate. The body is not going to function well. Every part, every member is called to grow up into the image of Christ. We should be concerned for one another. The last point I want to make is that the purpose of discipleship is to look like Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed, but six times in these six verses, Christ is mentioned. Verse 11 says that Christ gave the gifted teachers to build up the body of Christ, that we would attain, verse 13, to the full measure of Christ. Verse 15, we are to grow up into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom? From from holds together. Christ is mentioned over and over and over again. The purpose of discipleship is that we would look more like Jesus over time. I think it's so easy in the busyness and the stress of life to be so concerned about doing the right things that we forget to be the right kind of person. Oftentimes we make busyness a badge of honor. That if we just keep ourselves busy, keep trying, keep doing these things, go to programs, go to as many things as we can, we'll be doing the right things. But oftentimes we forget what it's all about. That we would look more like Jesus. It's like walking into a room and you forget why you walked in there. The motions were right, but the purpose was not. It was gone. We need to be doing the right things, yes, of course, but we need to be remembering why we're doing it. We want to look more like Jesus over time. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. As we run this race, let's keep our eyes on the prize, lest we be derailed and run in vain or run off course. So in conclusion, we've seen four things today. We've seen that there is a place for discipleship, a primary place, and that's in the local church where he's gifted each member of the body. So I encourage you to plug in to discover your gifts. We shouldn't assume that everyone in the church is assume that everyone knows what their gift is, but it's actually we plug in and we serve. People are discovering their gifts and they're using them to build up the body. Number two, we've seen the progression of discipleship, that we're to grow from spiritual infancy to adulthood, to maturity, to the image of Christ. So ask yourself, where am I in this walk with the Lord? Am I, am I growing? Am I continuing to grow and look more like Jesus? Am I helping others to do the same? Number three, we've seen that there's a pattern of discipleship that is truth and love. Maybe someone here this morning needs to repent over an extreme. It is the way of Christ, truth and love. Lastly, we've seen the purpose of discipleship is Christ-likeness. We want to look more like Jesus. In conclusion, 
I think of this, uh, this scene in a, in a movie that I like to watch a lot growing up, this kid's movie. And in this scene, these two main characters are walking across this chasm on a rickety bridge. Very sketchy, very unsafe. And as they're walking across, uh, the bridge crumbles and collapses and they start to fall. And basically, the chasm kind of came to a point and they get wedged together at this point. And kind of below that, there's this kind of moat, there's this lake filled with uh, alligators and crocodiles. So if they make a false move, they risk falling down to the alligators. And so as they're stuck there, they're trying to figure out what to do and they're each trying to kind of do their own thing. And as one moves without the other, they almost slip. They almost fall down into these crocodile infested waters. And what they figure out is they have to work together to get out. So they lock arms, they go back to back, and together they walk up the walls to safety. This is how it works in the local church. There is a way for spiritual transformation. There is a way forward, and it is together. We need each other to become more like Jesus. And this is all according to the wisdom and plan of God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to, to look at your word this morning. Lord, help us to rely on one another, to do life together, to become more like you together. Help us, Lord, as we strive to take our next steps towards you, as we strive to help others take their next step towards you. Lord, thank you for the way that you've gifted each member of this body. Would you help, help others to discover their gifts, that we would all use our gifts, and that we would build up the body together in love to your glory and your renown, O oh Jesus. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.